What if you grew up on a deserted island with nothing but the Bible to read? Imagine being rescued after 20 years and then attending a typical evangelical church. Chances are you'd be shocked for a whole lot of reasons, but that's another story. Having read the scriptures outside the context of the contemporary church culture, you would be convinced that the Holy Spirit is as essential to a believer's existence as air is to staying alive. And you would know that the Spirit led the first Christians to do unexplainable things, to live lives that didn't make sense to the culture around them, and to ultimately spread the story of God's grace around the world. There's a big gap between what we read in Scripture about the Holy Spirit and how most believers and churches operate today. In many modern churches, you would be stunned by the apparent absence of the Spirit in any manifest way. And this, I believe, is the crux of the problem. If I were Satan and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and purposes, one of my main strategies would be to get churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit. The degree to which this has happened, and I would argue that it is prolific disease in the body of Christ, is directly connected to the dissatisfaction that many of us feel with and in the church. We understand something very important is missing. The feeling is so strong that some have run away from the church and from God's word completely. I believe that this missing something is actually a missing someone, namely the Holy Spirit. Without him, people operate in their own strength and only accomplish human-sized results. The world is not moved by love or actions that are of human creation. And the church is not empowered to live differently from any other gathering of people without the Holy Spirit. But when believers live in the power of the Spirit, the evidence of their lives is supernatural. The church cannot help but be different, and the world cannot help but notice. This is author Francis Chan, who was a pastor out in California for a time. He's written a number of books, some of which our life groups have used for curriculum. But this is from a book that he wrote called Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. And this book really is about his understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in Scripture and the, the different role that the Holy Spirit plays in the modern-day church. And so he has this theory that we have relegated the Holy Spirit to kind of a smaller portion of the church and to a smaller portion of our lives than is what God intended and the role that uh, the Holy Spirit plays in uh, in, in scripture. And as a, as a Christian, as I read that, I, I was really challenged. I was confronted by what is, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in my personal life. As a pastor, I was really challenged to think, okay, am I misleading people? Is there something about the services that we're creating that maybe is not the fullness of the Holy Spirit? And, and it really caused me to, to, to assess and evaluate. And I read this a number of years ago, and I believe I kind of came to a, a firm feeling about where we were at and where I was at personally, but it was challenging to me. The book's a great read. I encourage you to read it if you haven't read it. It's by Francis Chan called Forgotten God. It's a great book. But the Holy Spirit in general is a, it's a difficult topic. I was going to say crazy topic, but I don't want us to feel like that there's anything crazy or, or able for us to maybe make fun of about the Holy Spirit because I want to I wanna talk about this topic today with as much reverence as possible. But it's an interesting topic for sure because some of us in this room are completely comfortable with all things Holy Spirit, Right? I mean, I, I could say just about anything. I could give just about any example. I could tell just about any story, and you're like, yeah, I've seen that. I've done that, right? And you'd be fine to talk about it. You have no discomfort. You're either There's nothing in you, nothing in the experiences that you have that makes you uncomfortable in that way. And then the rest of us are somewhere on this continuum between I have no idea what you're talking about to I am somewhat comfortable with the idea of the Holy Spirit. 
And somewhere in all of that mix is where we as a congregation find ourselves today in trying to wrestle with who or what is the Holy Spirit and what or, or who is the Holy Spirit in me. You know, the Holy Spirit is one-third of what we refer to as the Trinity. And when I say the Trinity, that's just another word for us to really recognize the person and the makeup of God. We have God the Father, we have God the Son, who was Jesus Christ when he came to earth, and we have God the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. And so as familiar as, or as comfortable as you may be with God the Father, when you pray or when we sing songs, when you hear the word God or the name of God recognized, when we read about or we go to God's word and we look to the person of Jesus Christ and maybe whatever your comfort level is there, it seems like, and this was Chan's assessment, that the Holy Spirit is that forgotten part, that forgotten God, that part of God that we almost leave off or leave out when we begin talking about who and what God is or does. Well, today is Pentecost Sunday, or at least it is for us. And here's the reason that I say that, because Pentecost Sunday was actually last Sunday. But last Sunday was also Memorial Day weekend, so our church decided, along with other churches, to move Pentecost Sunday one week later so that we could celebrate Memorial Day last week and the holiday weekend and also celebrate Pentecost Sunday and give it its due today. But it's not some arbitrary date. It's, I was accused on Facebook when I said something about, you know, I posted that we were going to celebrate Pentecost Sunday. Somebody reminded me that Pentecost Sunday was May the 24th, 2015. And so they let me know that we were in error in that regard. I appreciated them including the date in that uh, and the, the year in case I was confused. But um, we'll strike that from the podcast in case they come back and listen. But, uh, but it's, it's not arbitrary. It's almost like as if we would have moved Christmas. You know, hey, we just decided to celebrate Christmas June the 4th this year uh, because we don't want it to get in the way of everybody's travel schedules. We weren't attempting to do that. But Pentecost Sunday is not an arbitrary date. It really is concreted in its connection to Easter Sunday. So if you didn't know this, Pentecost Sunday is always seven Sundays after Easter and so it's 50 days removed, and this is not something, again, that anybody made up or somebody was trying to just come up with another holiday or something else that we should celebrate. It's really connected to the Old Testament law. You can read about it in several places. One of those places is Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, we read about these festivals and these feasts that are established for God's people so that God could help them to celebrate, to offer offerings, and also to worship. And so God was establishing a, a pattern of, of feasts and festivals. And so Passover, which is connected to our modern-day Easter celebration, uh, would come before what we are referencing now as Pentecost Sunday. But it wasn't called Pentecost Sunday in the Old Testament because Pentecost is really a Greek word. And so the Old Testament and the Old Testament saints were Hebrews. And so in the Hebrew, that festival or that feast would have been known as the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. And the reason it was the idea of this Feast of Weeks is because it was seven weeks. It was seven full cycles. Seven obviously is a, is a, day, is a week long if you had seven days. So there's seven cycles of, of weeks. And so it was almost a week of weeks. And so this idea that they had a feast of weeks or a feast of harvest. So 50 days after the Passover, they would celebrate what was this feast. Now, here's what they were supposed to do at this feast. They were supposed to bring their grain because it was very much connected to the time of harvest. They were supposed to bring their grain. They were supposed to bring two loaves of bread that were produced from their own crops. They were supposed to bring a lamb and a bull and a goat and a drink offering to the priest. And he was going to make sacrifice and utilize the bread and the things that they had brought with them. You were not allowed to work during this festival. Can I get an amen there? So all of you 
you can have the rest of the day off. Congratulations, it's the festival of Pentecost. So you can have the day off, but it, nobody was supposed to work. And if you lived outside of Jerusalem, this was a pilgrim holiday. So anyone who was of Jewish descent that understood the festival of weeks, understood the festival of the harvest, they came to Jerusalem for this feast. And so that was important, and we're going to see why that was important later. But what I wanted to do for you is to help you understand that this is not just a celebration that started in Acts chapter 2. Now, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament, after Jesus has passed away and he, he's come back to life and he appears to his disciples, um, in that moment we see the Holy Spirit kind of make his appearance, if you will, into the New Testament in a really real way, even though he's been visible throughout the scriptures. But Pentecost Sunday is not just about Acts chapter 2. Pentecost Sunday predates Acts chapter 2 and the upper room and the tongues that came from heaven as divided tongues of fire potentially because this was a time to party when we get to Acts 2 because they were already celebrating the time of Pentecost or this festival that existed prior to that. Now let me also set up for us as a church what we believe about Pentecost or Pentecostals. We as a church, including our campus here in Canton, both of our campuses, we are or we identify ourselves as a Pentecostal church. We are a part of the Church of God denomination, which is headquartered for our worldwide church in Cleveland, Tennessee. There are somewhere between 6 million and 13 million members around the world of our church. The reason that that number is so large is that in some countries, they only count men, and not just from our church, but in that government and the way that they take statistics. In some countries, they count the entire family and all the people over maybe 16 or 18 years old. So we're somewhere between 6 and 13 million members in the denomination that we're a part. Of, and the Church of God classifies itself as a Pentecostal church. And so as I was doing some research, maybe for some of you that wouldn't be familiar with this, I just went to the Church of God website. You can go there for yourself, churchofgod.org. And this is what it says on the website about identifying as a Pentecostal. It says, in 1896, many members of the Church of God experienced a spiritual outpouring that they identified as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because it was so similar to the experience of the early Christians on the day of Pentecost, it came to be called a Pentecostal experience, an enrichment of the Christian life through the power of the Holy Spirit that empowered believers to be effective witnesses of Christ. I'm going to stop right here for just a second. I know they just switched. It was an enrichment of the Christian life through the power of the Holy Spirit that empowered believers to be effective witnesses of Christ. That's important. We'll come back to that. The principal distinctive of the Church of God as a Pentecostal organization is its belief in speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance and that this is the initial evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, for those that are, again, a little bit unfamiliar with Pentecostals or the things of Pentecost or the Holy Spirit, just so you don't think that we're on the fringe or that we're somewhere on the extremities of Christian faith and you're, man, this is freaking me out. I don't think I know anybody that does that or whatever. Here's some statistics from 2014. Globally, worldwide, there, are, there were 631 million Pentecostals in 2014, which comprised nearly one out of every four Christians on the face of the earth. So one out of every four Christians on the globe was Pentecostal, meaning that they classified themselves as a part of this group of people that had similar experiences to those in the upper room of Acts chapter 2. And here's another statistic, that there were only 63 million Pentecostals in 1970, but that that number is expected to reach 800 million by 2025. So Pentecostalism uh, is, is a growing, thriving, vibrant part of worldwide Christianity. 
And we, as a church, including this campus, are a part of that thriving movement. Now, the Church of God website referenced the day of Pentecost and the experience of people there at the day of Pentecost, and I've even referenced it a couple times. So I think it's probably important for us to jump there and to talk a little bit about what was happening on the day in the New Testament that we really point to as kind of the start of or the precursor a little bit of what we're celebrating and the work of the Holy Spirit. Before we get to Acts 2... Let's start in Acts chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, you can flip with me there. We're going to spend most of the remaining time that we have together today in Acts 1 and in Acts 2. We'll jump to a couple other places briefly, but Acts 1 and 2 is where we'll spend the remainder of our time for the most part. Acts 1 is the conclusion of the Gospels. Jesus has he's died. He has risen from the tomb. We celebrated that about 50-ish days ago, depending on when we're celebrating Pentecost Sunday. He's risen from the dead, and he has begun to appear to those that were followers of his. And after, as he's appearing to them, he's telling them something that they should be preparing for. And this is what it says in Acts 1, beginning in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them, his followers, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus is telling them to go or to stay there in Jerusalem, but go to a place and wait on the promise of God, which he says was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says, John baptized in water. This is John the Baptist. We read about him in the early gospel account. And he was baptizing people in the river there, in the Jordan River. He was baptizing them, and he was saying, hey, I'm baptizing you because you've made a public profession in your faith. Jesus himself was baptized by John. John, who was the cousin of Jesus, even said that he was not worthy to hold the the, the thongs of the sandals that Jesus would wear because he said, I'm baptizing with water, but he's coming after who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, which we're going to read about again in a minute. So this is all setting up what would happen, okay? So this This is a different baptism than we celebrate when people go under the water and come back up. And this is what we begin reading in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read together. When the day of the Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. Now, if you are unfamiliar with speaking in tongues, don't freak out. Don't lose me here. We'll get to that in a minute. But just hang with me. Let's continue reading in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why were they there? Because of the feast. They had come to Jerusalem for the feast of harvest. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing hearing them speak in his own language. So the people coming out of what we call the upper room, this place where they were gathered, the noise, the mighty rushing wind, the sound of the fire descending, all these people spilling out into the streets, all of these devout Jews from all over the world are there. They hear the sound, they come running, and then these people that come spilling out, they are speaking in all these other languages. And this is what it says, verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished. The crowd was saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans. 
And how is it that we, the people of the world, hear each of us in our own native language? So the Galileans are speaking the, all of the, the languages that are represented in Jerusalem, and we were told that the nations of the world, every nation under heaven is represented. So all the nations, all the languages are being spoken by the people coming out of the upper room. Now, verse 9 and part of verse 10 references all the different people groups and all the different languages and a bunch of stuff. I'm not even going to try to pronounce all those words, but continue reading in verse 10. And Egypt, I know that word, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, uh, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said, they were, are filled with new wine. The people in the streets literally thought the people coming out of the room were drunk, except that in their drunkenness, they had evidently picked up a new skill. While they were drinking, evidently, they had picked up the ability to speak a language that they had never learned themselves. And so they're trying to, to figure out what's going on with these people that are coming out of the upper room. Aren't all of these Galileans, aren't they all the same people group? Then how is it that they, as they come out, are able to speak all of the languages that are represented by all of the people, which represents the entire earth, and they've never learned these languages? How are they doing that? And they're hearing... Uh, what, what they're hearing is, is coming to them in their native language. That's really, really, really important. Now, if you just read that, and, and Chan referenced, if you read that, you go, wow, the Holy Spirit's kind of important, I think. There's something happening. If you continue to read the New Testament, I think you would see that the role of the Holy Spirit is a vital part to the Christian life. The Church of God website that it says it was this enrichment. Can you be saved without the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Yes, I believe that you can. We do believe that at salvation, you receive the Holy Spirit into your life and what we call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which means that the, the, the God's nature lives inside of you when you are saved. And we believe that baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not the going under the water and coming out, but that baptism of the Holy Spirit moment, we believe that you receive what we call the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's that enrichment, that power that comes to you where you're able to do what God has called you uniquely to do in the way that he desires for you to do that. And so as we look at this, I want to look at four things that I think will bring some clarity to the idea of Pentecost. On this Pentecost Sunday, there's a lot of different ways we could go, but I want to try to bring clarity to what we've just read in Acts chapter 1 and 2 and, and, and identify four things that I think kind of help us know what Pentecost is really about. And then we'll conclude that, and then we'll go to some of your questions to see if we can bring further clarity to this subject. The first is this. Pentecost is about unity. For some reason, Pentecost seems to be a divisive issue. But Pentecost is really about unity. And here's what we see in Acts 2.1. We already read it. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, this is referencing the group of people that were in that room together and so they were in the same location. They were in that same place. So there was unity in their location. But not just that. If we remember what we read in Acts chapter 1, they were also in unity in their expectation. Why were they in that room together? Because they were expecting God to do something in their lives. He said, you go and wait on the promise. There was something that they were expecting in that place. So they were in unity in location, but also unity in expectation. And again, 
sometimes I think this becomes this really divisive issue. And all we're talking about, we're not creating a a class of the haves and the have-nots. We are saying, I want as much of God's nature in me as possible. And we believe that the work of the Holy Spirit is a part of that work in and through us. When I was a teenager, my youth group took a trip to a revival that was taking place. It was kind of a cultural phenomenon, especially in the United States at that point. It was down in Pensacola, Florida. It was at Brownsville Assembly of God down there. Some of you that are maybe more church, kind of like me, you you may be familiar with that. It was kind of in the 90s, uh, and there was kind of the early to mid-90s, all the way really until the year 2000. Uh, This revival was taking place, and somewhere between two and a half and four million unique people came to visit that revival, attend a service. Uh, Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were saved. There were reports of miraculous healings and just supernatural works of God. And my youth group was taking a trip, and we, as a part of that trip, went to uh, the Brownsville Assembly of God. We had a youth choir. We sang there in one of their services. I believe it was on a Sunday night, and uh, we attended a service, and then we did some other ministry as a part of that trip. And I remember us being in a service one, uh, that night, and, and at the, the call of, uh, of the end of the message, the, the, the evangelist who was preaching He gave a salvation call. And what I mean by that is at the end, he said, hey, if you are not saved, if you are a sinner in need of a savior, I'm going to count to three and they're going to begin singing and I want you to stand up and I want you to run to these altars. And that's what happened. He, he, he prayed a quick prayer. He said, one, two, three. They began singing this amazing song and people all over the room jumped up out of their seats and ran to those altars and knelt and cried and accepted the Lord as their savior. There was just an incredible move of God's spirit during the worship time. And it was a powerful, powerful moment. And I remember us getting back on the charter bus that we had taken to that service. And I I can't remember how old I was. I guess I was somewhere maybe around 16 or so, maybe 15, 16. And I remember us getting on the charter bus. And I remember one of the students in my youth group saying something like this, man, why doesn't that happen at our church? It's a valid question. I don't think that they meant it as as anything evil or they weren't trying to kind of make fun of our church or or, or put down our church. I don't think it was anything like that. I think it was a sincere question. But why doesn't that happen at our church? And I remember a very wise youth leader who gave this answer to that student and I just happened to be in earshot and I've never forgotten what this wise youth leader said to that student. Said this, Before you came to church tonight, when we were going to Brownsville, what was your expectation about what was going to take place? And they 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 said, well, you know, we we knew God was going to move. People were going to be saved, awesome worship, an amazing thing. But okay, what's your expectation when you come to our church on any given Sunday? It was the idea that this youth leader was saying, it's not that God only moves here and doesn't move there. It's not that God does it this way and doesn't do it that way. It's not that God is looking for us to do a checklist of a formula that says, hey, I'm going to do this when you do these three things, and I'll only show up when you do these you know, four songs and you have a key change. It's not that. It is the idea that I believe as much as it depends on us, there is a need for us to have a unity in expectation. And I think that's what the people in the upper room had. They had a unity in location. 
They also had a unity in expectation where they were expecting God to do something. He had told them through Jesus Christ, if you go to this place, I'm going to send the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, to you with the baptism. But not only that, their unity was symbolic. And I want to try to get through this quickly. I preached a message on this two years ago on Pentecost Sunday in a a relationship series. It was called Relationship Reconciliation, I think is the title. You can go back and get it on the podcast if you want to do that. But I preached on this idea uh, on that Pentecost Sunday uh, about connecting Acts chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11 is the place where we read that all the people of the earth are together in one place and they decide that they're going to build a tower, right? The Tower of Babel. And they're speaking one language, and they're just all unified around what they're going to do. And God, for a number of reasons, which I I talk about in that message, God, for a number of reasons, decides not to allow their plan to be successful. And so he disperses them. He confuses them. He gives them multiple languages instead of their one language. And he spreads them out all over the face of the earth. This is what it says in Genesis 11, 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel. The Tower of Babel is what we talked about. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so we looked at, in Genesis 11, we see this dispersing. We see all these people spreading out and beginning to speak all these different languages. And we see in Acts chapter 2, the the unity that comes back together as what we read was that all the nations of the earth, all the nations under heaven are represented in Jerusalem. So they've been dispersed, and now they come back together for this feast And then in that place, even though they speak all these different languages around the world, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, all of those languages are able to be spoken in one moment by a group of people who did not have that ability except for the supernatural power of God. There's unity in the presence there in Jerusalem. The second thing that I believe about Pentecost is that Pentecost is about the supernatural. Now, There's a lot of ways you can look at that, but the the word supernatural is just meaning that it's outside the bounds of the nature or the laws of nature of of our earth, of the systems that God created here on the earth. But read this in Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we already read this, but you can't help but read that and go, wow, that's supernatural. There was a mighty wind that filled the room and that blew through that place. There were tongues that came down from heaven and descended and sat on or rested on each one of the people that was there. I've never seen that. That's a supernatural type of event because anywhere you see fire, you assume that something is being burned up except for these places where God does it supernaturally, like the burning bush of the Old Testament. And here, where the, this fire, this, this divided tongue of fire rests on these people and they're not burned, they actually are receiving the power of God. And so you see this supernatural work. The Apostle Paul writes a lot in the other letters of the New Testament about the supernatural work and even some of the more natural work of the Holy Spirit in and through our lives when he talks about spiritual gifts and he talks about the ways that God works in and through us. But he makes sure that we know that there are things that God can do through us that we cannot do 
on our own outside of the supernatural work of God. Now, one of those is obvious. We've read it and talked about it a little bit here. It's the idea of speaking in tongues. Now, there are two types of tongues here, and it might be called a prayer language. It might be called a a, a spiritual language. But what what I want you to know is what we see here in Acts chapter 2 that's very explicitly talked about is that they are speaking an unlearned language. They're speaking a language they had not learned God supernaturally gives them the ability to speak that language so that someone who knows that language can understand it. There's also examples in Scripture and in present day where we see people that are giving a message in tongues that is an unknown language or a heavenly language. And we see that reference where it's, it's different than an unlearned. It's not that you didn't know how to speak Spanish and now through the power of God you can speak Spanish, which there are testimonies of people who have had that happen to them. And that, that's not what we're talking about in this instance. We're talking about maybe speaking what is more of a heavenly language or an unknown language. It sounds to people in the room, maybe like something that's not even a language at all. And then we see an interpretation, which is another of these supernatural gifts Paul references, where someone comes behind it and gives meaning to what we have just heard. Now, it's not a direct translation. So if someone speaks in tongues in an unknown language for 10 seconds, it may not be that someone comes after them and gives an interpretation or a translation in 10 seconds and says, here's exactly what they said and here's how long. It's an interpretation. It says, this is what that means to those of us that heard it. And so that translation, that, or that interpretation is another of those supernatural gifts that Paul references. Another is miracles. A miracle is something that's, that happens that is outside the bounds of what you and I can do. I read recently a tweet that God heals three different ways. He heals naturally. Our bodies just naturally heal themselves. If you've ever had a cold or if you've ever hurt, you know, you got a bruise or you sprained your ankle, it naturally heals over a a different degree of time. He heals medically. We believe that God works through doctors and nurses and medicines to help us to heal. And then he heals miraculously. And so maybe you've, you've been a part of that happening in your life or in the life of someone that you know, but a miracle is another one of those examples that is a supernatural gift. God does the work himself, maybe even through the work or the hand of someone that is here on earth. But there are, there's others, but these are the kinds of things I'm talking about. Where It's a supernatural work. We believe that Pentecost is about the supernatural. But I love the wisdom of Paul. I've referenced him a couple times. I love the wisdom of Paul. That as he's talking about all these different things and he's talking about spiritual gifts and he's talking about the supernatural, I love that in the middle of that, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, because 12 and 14 are really kind of bookends to him talking about the gifts of the Spirit. Right in the middle of that, in 1 Corinthians 13, is a chapter. Does anybody know what it's called? Love chapter, right? I've done a bunch of weddings this spring. I've quoted part of 1 Corinthians 13 in every single one of them. It's how we can love one another. Love is patient. Love is kind, right? It does not envy. It does not boast. It does not keep a record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil. It always rejoices. It always perseveres, right? It's this idea that this is how we are to love one another. Love never fails. I love that Paul puts that right in the middle of where he's talking about these spiritual gifts. And you may, if you're reading through 1 Corinthians, you may go, man, how is that even connected? So let's read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Before you ever get to love is patient, love is kind. This is what Paul says. He's just come out of talking about spiritual gifts. He's about to go back into it in 1 Corinthians 14. And this is what he says in 13 verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, this idea of, of either heavenly languages or earthly languages, but I have not love... 
I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers or those, the ability to, to prophesy and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all the faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. He's saying here, listen, you can talk about spiritual gifts all day long, but if you don't demonstrate the love that reflects the nature of God at the same time or at the same rate that you are attempting to reflect the gifts of the Spirit of God, that you are in error. And and I love that wisdom and I love that balance and it's something that speaks to me, but here's what happened. One of the reasons that I believe my generation and others became skeptical of the work of the Holy Spirit is because we couldn't rationalize how the same mouth speaking so holy inside the church could talk so foul outside of the church. I think that created skepticism in my generation and in others because we could not put together in our minds how someone could be led by the Spirit of God to do the miraculous and the supernatural and be so, it seemed, just under the influence of the power of God in a worshipful service moment And then walk outside of the church and live in such a way that did not reflect any part of the nature of God. How is that the same person? Now, here's what I think happens. For me, this is a personal conviction, so I'm setting that as a disclaimer right now. And I'm going to read it exactly as I wrote it down. I have a personal conviction that a person's gifts of the Spirit and the same fruit of the Spirit shouldn't cause an observer to wonder which part they're lying about. That's a personal conviction of mine. It's it's something that I attempt to live out to the very best of my ability. And I'm not saying that I'm calling us to a life of perfection and you're never able to make a mistake and you're never able to kind of lose your temper and you're never able to... I'm saying though, as much as I'm pursuing the work of God through me, I have to also be pursuing the work of God in me. I think that's powerful and I think that's something... That's missing in our lives if we're not careful. We desire to be used in such a mighty way sometimes. We desire for the Holy Spirit to work through us in a powerful way, and yet we do not exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's a personal conviction of mine. And yet we went too far. I went too far, my generation went too far because the problem is that we allowed our skepticism to make us cynical. And we went too far in our efforts to understand and to rationalize and to make sense that we lost that sense that God wanted to do something supernatural. And lastly, I want to read something related to this section that I wrote just so I get it exactly how I believe the Lord laid it on my heart. We have replaced our awe and our hope for the supernatural with our comfort for the explainability of the natural. We have lost and replaced our awe and our hope for the supernatural with our comfort of the explainability of the natural because Pentecost is about the supernatural. Thirdly, Pentecost is about power. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's pretty simple right there. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That, that's really almost all I need to say, that Pentecost is about 
power. He said, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive power. But power for what? The fourth is this. Pentecost is about proclamation. Pentecost is about proclamation. We read in Acts 1-8 where he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you for what? To be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He said that we would receive power to be his witnesses. We read in the Church of God website, he said that it was an enrichment in the Christian life so that we could be witnesses under the power of God. But amazing things happened as they were coming out of that upper room. You know, the people came and said, man, I think they're all drunk. I think this is weird. Aren't they all Galileans? I don't know what this means. I can't figure out how this is happening. I don't think they've learned all these languages. But then this really cool thing happens. All that kind of settles down a little bit. And in the midst of whatever chaos there was still left, comes one voice. And it's the voice of a guy who, just prior to this, had completely blown it. Peter. Right? Peter's the guy who denied Jesus three times. We know that story. This is a guy who is a humongous failure. He had dropped the ball. He had said, no, I don't even know that guy. Yeah, the Jesus that called me out, the Jesus that gave me purpose, the Jesus that gave me a life, I don't know him at all. And then here he stands with the power of the Holy Spirit working through his life. And this is what he says beginning in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. This, this weak and timid, scared Peter who's hiding from a little girl next to a fire. Just a few chapters before this is what he says. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, because it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered from the prophet Joel. And then he quotes an Old Testament prophecy. And in the last days it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in in that day, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below and blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, 3,000 people ended up being saved that day. Pentecost unity and supernatural power and proclamation produced salvation. But here's what I love about it. Peter was saying something under the power of God that he didn't fully understand. Because what did he say in the very last verse that we just read? And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Prior to this day, the only people that they were trying to save were Jews. It's it's several chapters later that Peter even has a vision and understands that God desires for everyone, including the Gentiles, to be saved. And if you are not of Jewish descent this morning, you are thankful that that happened because we are the Gentiles that have been grafted and brought into the family of God. Peter says, hey, because of the power of God, everyone can be saved. Pentecost is about unity It's about the supernatural and it's about power and it's about proclamation, but it produces salvation. 
It is so connected to salvation. In a lot of those accounts in the book of Acts where we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit taking place, it happens right after or even almost almost simultaneous. It's a separate work, but almost simultaneous to salvation and conversion. Because these people are accepting Christ as their Savior and they are saying, I want all of the power of God in and through me. In the early 1900s here in the United States, there was a revival that took place called the Azusa Street Revival. It started out in California and it really started out of a mission. And there was several leaders, William Seymour really kind of spearheading that and then helping lead a a ministry beyond that. That really brought Pentecost and the power of Pentecost to the United States in a widespread way. We believe the Church of God. We read that in 1896. This was in like 1906. But the Holy Spirit was at work there and people spoke in tongues and the supernatural happened. It was powerful. But here's what the leader of that revival said. He said, now do not go from this meeting and talk about tongues, but try to get people saved. The most powerful early move of the spirit and the power of God in the United States. And the leader says, this is great. But don't walk out of this place talking about the tongues. Walk out of this place and try to get more people saved because of the power of God through you. We are a Pentecostal church. We are a church that believes in unity. We want it. We believe in the supernatural and we want the power to proclaim. And the reason that we do is because we want people to be saved. And beyond that, we want people to experience the fullness of God and all that he has for And so as we pray here, I want to close this moment. And I want us to pray and ask God to help all of us experience the fullness of his power. And what I mean by that is if you have never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to pray that God does that work in you. And if you desire that, I want you to pray both now and after service, there'll be some prayer team members down here and they would love to pray with you as you seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you say, hey, I I don't even know what all that means. I mean, I've listened to this today and I'm not really sure where I land on some of this, but if you're telling me that I can have more of God at work in and through my life, I want that. And so that's what we're gonna pray for you today. And I want us to pray and just ask God to really open us up and to help us understand and to make us sensitive, to break our hearts. And if you're a part of a group of people that you say, man, I experienced all kinds of crazy stuff, some stuff that I know can't be God. I'm gonna just ask for your forgiveness. I I probably, hopefully wasn't even there when it happened. But, But on behalf of whoever was leading that moment, I'm just gonna say, I'm sorry that somehow human hands and probably pure motives got in the way of you wanting to experience the fullness of God in your life. And so today I'm just going to say, God, would you just help them to heal their hearts and to desire more of you in their lives? I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. We're just going to pray, and then we're going to come back and answer a few questions before we conclude today. God, I thank you so much for the Holy Spirit. I thank you for the power of Pentecost. I thank you for all that we have to celebrate. I thank you, God, that just as we prayed earlier, that you don't leave us on our own to kind of figure out life, but that, God, you desire to work in and through us. And so, God, today I pray for the Holy Spirit power that we read about in Scripture. I pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit for every person in this room who has never received that and who desires it. I pray that, God, for every person in this room. I pray, God, for the fullness 
of your work in and through people to be experienced, God, in a way that they've never experienced before. And God, I pray for a group of people who maybe have experienced hurt or confusion as a part of previous moments or maybe even some in our church. I pray, God, that you would help them to forgive and that you would help them to release that and that, God, somehow they would continue to pursue with purity all that you truly do desire for their lives. God, let us experience your power in a very real way. In Jesus' name I pray.